اعوذ باللہ من الشیطان الرجیم بسم اللہ الرحمن الرحیم لیسل برا انت ولو وجوہ کم قبل المشرقی والمغربی ولاکن البرا من آمن باللہ ولیوم الآخری ولملائکت والکتاب والنبیین وآت المال علی حبه ذوی القربا والیتاما والمساکین وابن السبیل والسائلین وفی الرکاب وأقام الصلاة وآت الزكاة والموفون بأهدهم إذا آهدوا والصابرين في البأساء والذراء وخين البأس أولئك الذين صدقوا وأولئك هم المتكون It is not righteousness that you turn your face to the east or to the west but truly righteous is he who believes in Allah in the last day and the angels and the books and the prophets and spends his money for love of him on the kindred and the orphans and the needy and the wayfarer and those who ask for charity and for ransoming the captives and for uh, and who observe prayers and pays the zakat and those who fulfill their promise when they have made one and the patient in poverty and affliction and the steadfast in times of war it is these who have proved truthful and it is these who are the God-fearing Chapter 2, verse 178. In commentary, Hazrat Muslim one who explained that when we look at the character of the Sahaba of the Holy Prophet then we see that the standard that they had was something that was very different than the standard that exists today and right now. There are people who consider it a great good deed if someone is regular in their five daily prayers. In fact, many times a person is considered very pious if that person is regular in his five daily congregational prayers. But that type of compliment, as far as the Sahaba was concerned, would have been considered equal and almost as absurd as saying that that person is a brave person because he's able to stand on his own two feet. Or a certain person has a very strong stomach because he's able to digest just one chickpea. So Hazur said that similar is the case of the Sahaba. Their standard of spirituality was so high that they all were regular in the observance of Salat and sincere Salat. But standards have fallen and standards have changed. In fact, Hazrat Masih said in one place that if the munafiqeen of the time of the Holy Prophet had been alive today, then they would have been considered sincere believers by the general masses. Because although they were weak in their faith, but that weakness in their faith was in comparison to the companions of the Holy Prophet but still, just because of the environment and the society that they lived in and just because of the good examples that were around them, the sacrifices that they offered were sacrifices that many people even today do not offer. So these standards of righteousness vary. And the true standard is something that was established by the Holy Prophet wasallam and by his Sahaba. So Allah Ta'ala says in this verse that true righteousness is what exists in our faith and in our actions. Not in a person's victories that a person achieves on a worldly level. Firstly, the different aspects of faith are described, the different articles of faith. Then after this, there are several different actions that a person must do, which Allah Ta'ala has described, which are a uh, uh, testimony to that person's righteousness. The spending of wealth is one of those things. And there are many different categories that are described in this verse. The first is Allah Hubbihi Zawil Qurba. And the reason this is mentioned first is because our family and those who are closest to us are the ones who have a greatest right on us. Then waliyatama, the orphans. Orphans are important because they are helpless in society. 
Also, there is no expectation or hope to receive any recompense back from them. When a person helps a poor person, they can imagine that perhaps tomorrow this person will be able to be of some use to me. But an orphan is a child that a person cannot expect to have any dividend that pays them back any time in the near future. It is more of a sincere sacrifice. Then also the reason orphans is mentioned second here, one of the reasons could be is because of the importance of supporting the sacrifice that people have made for the sake of Islam and for the sake of their nation. If a person dies for even a secular cause, like their country or their philosophy, if their children and their family are not looked after after they die, then that is a disrespect to their sacrifice. People in the future will hesitate from making that sacrifice if they know that my children will starve and my wife will be left with no support whatsoever. So when we encourage people to sacrifice for the sake of society, for the sake of Islam, then it is only lip service if we do not actually support the people's families who offered that sacrifice. So to support the orphans and to support widows is a part of our national responsibility when it comes to sacrifice for the sake of Allah Almighty. And when a nation begins to neglect this responsibility to they have to orphans, then that nation also slowly loses its capacity to be able to offer individual sacrifice for the greater good. Then people become more and more selfish. So these are two things that are intricately linked. If a person is too selfish to be able to help orphans of people who gave everything for the sake of the greater good, then that greater good disappears in society as well. After this is al-masakin, those who are needy. And al-masakin is there's a distinction made here after al-masakin wabna sabili wa sa'ilina. That the needy is mentioned, then the wayfarer, those people who are traveling. And then wa sa'ilina is mentioned, those who ask, those who beg. Now, this distinction has been made between miskin and sa'il. Miskin is someone who is poor. But miskin in this context is not someone who is poor and asks. Miskin is someone who maintains that self-respect. Both a miskin and sa'il are both poor, but Allah Ta'ala has distinguished them in a very important way. And that is the dignity with which they carry themselves. Human dignity is so important that these two have to be categorized in a different way and they are given different priority. Sa'il, a person who begs, is a person who is given a lower priority because Islam discourages begging. The Holy Prophet ﷺ discouraged begging. If a person has food and is able to feed himself, then for that person to beg is something that is wrong. In fact, he discouraged it to such an extent that some of his companions considered it haram on themselves. They, far be it from begging, they wouldn't even ask somebody for a small personal favor, even though that is something that is perfectly permissible and there is nothing wrong with it. Now, there is also an example in the time of Hazrat Umar anhu, that he once saw a person begging for food and along with him he had enough food to feed himself. He had you know, raw, the bread, the dough that is needed for bread with him. Perhaps he had received that from someone else while he was begging. Hazrat Umar anhu became angry at him and gave that bread to animals and said, now you should beg. The wisdom that he wished to teach him is that when you have enough food to feed yourself now, now you have fulfilled the need of begging. To beg beyond that is something that goes beyond what Islam, is, Islam considers to be within the realm of that which is permissible as a, for a dignified person. So begging is something that only a person can do in the most extreme conditions and even then it is something that is strongly discouraged. And there a person should only do it up until their bare necessities, nothing more. So Allah Ta'ala has said that after the orphans, al-masakin, those who are poor but carry themselves with dignity, 
We must look out for their needs. We may be unaware of their needs because they do not ask like people who come after us and keep asking us for money. But these people have a greater priority in the sight of Allah Almighty. Wabna Sabil is those who are traveling. This does not confine itself to people who are rich or whether a person is poor. But when a person is traveling, even if a person is rich or even if a person is well off, difficulties can arise in traveling where a person finds himself in a very difficult situation where his riches do nothing for him. Many times it happens even in this day and age with credit cards and everything that a person is traveling. And then, for whatever reason, their credit card stops working as well. They lose whatever means that they have. You know, this happens a lot of times when people are traveling, they don't let their company know beforehand or whatever it is, and so then the company thinks that the card has been stolen, and so they shut off all transactions. The person who's in that situation finds himself in a very precarious situation. No matter how rich he is, his house and his bank account is not helping him at all in that situation. So... Traveling is something that puts a person in difficult circumstances at times, desperate circumstances at times. That is why Islam has placed so many rights for travelers. A person has a right to three days of hospitality. A Muslim is responsible. He is not doing anyone a favor by giving hospitality and food to a traveler for three days. In one place, Hazrat Muslim one who has said that those people who are sent out for Bakfi Arzi, for the sake of Allah Almighty, if they need food and they are traveling, then there is nothing wrong with them asking for food. It is something that is permissible and it is their right to ask for food as a traveler. People who are Muslims should offer it in the first place without there being a need to ask. But even if they need to ask, it does not come under the category of begging. But it comes under the category of asking for a person's due right, which a person has every right to ask for. So Wabna Sabil is the next category of spending in the cause of Allah Almighty. Then Wasailina, those who are beggars. Beggars should not be treated with disdain, but a person should give them something, anything, when they, when they ask. They should not be turned away empty-handed unless a person actually has nothing to give at that time. This was the way of the Holy Prophet wasallam, and the Promised Messiah has set an example of this as well that answers detailed questions that sometimes arise in the hearts of people. You know, sometimes people ask that, I don't want to give money to a homeless person because then they're just going to go and buy drugs with it or something like that. Hazrat Masih gave money to beggars even when this same point was brought before him. It is not our place to speculate as to what they may do with it, but we fulfill our responsibility to Allah Almighty. Then after this is wafir rikab. Wafir rikab is the freeing of slaves or the freeing of prisoners. And it can also apply to, apply to helping people out who are entrapped in debt, because debt is a type of slavery as well. And this gives us an insight into the sort of uh, nature of debt as it is described in Islam. When our tafsir has described a metaphorical meaning of slavery as being debt, then we can imagine how important it is to avoid it. Not just because it is something that is discouraged in Islam. I mean, going into debt is not something that is forbidden, of course. The Holy Prophet ﷺ took loans at times. No, it is a necessity that arises. But just because of the pure suffering and difficulty that arises as a, as a result of it, the way that it weighs down on our minds, it is a burden that constantly nags away at us. So being in debt is akin to a type of prison and a type of slavery. And as far as possible, a person should strive to live within their means and only borrow something if there it is absolutely necessary. When the Holy Prophet ﷺ did it, when the Sahaba did it, there it is understandable. The times of poverty were obvious. There were times when there was not even food to eat. 
And the, his wives narrate that at times that that food was not cooked in his in his house for you know, long periods of times. Many times this situation would come upon them. That's a different situation. We know Khulafa have taken loans and been in debt many times as well as well. But for us, when we live in a time of such security here in the United States, now there are many people who suffer from poverty here in the U.S. as well, but many of the people who are in debt, especially those people who live in areas like the areas we live in, in affluence, the debt that people go into is not out of necessity, it is just out of desire. It is just out of materialism. It is a desire to strive for a standard of living that is above our own. So when a person puts themselves into this situation for no necessity but just out of desire, then a person puts themselves unnecessarily into a type of hell in this world. And that's something that's very harmful. It is harmful not only for our own sense of well-being, our own psychological health, but also for our families as well. It is observed that many of the domestic problems that happen the root cause of it comes back to financial issues, financial problems. So when a person puts themselves into a prison and slavery of debt just because of materialism and then puts their family into that situation as well, it isn't just something that confines itself to that isolated situation. It causes the destruction and tension, causes tension in marriages which results in tension and domestic problems and even divorces. And this harms children a great deal as well. The harm that these types of domestic problems do to children is something that is direct. It is an action and reaction type of direct result. There's one marriage counselor named John Gottman who is the foremost in his field in studying marital tension and uh, you know problems that arise in divorces and why they happen. And, and you know, he doesn't just do counseling on a psych, 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 psychiatrical uh, level, but he does it on a psychological, scientific level. And there are two methods that he uses to identify whether there are domestic problems in a household, whether a husband and wife are disagreeing. The first one, I don't remember what it was, but the second one I found interesting is that he said, if I can just get a urine sample of the children of that couple, then I can determine with full accuracy, whether that husband and wife are fighting or not. Because the stress hormones that are found in the urine of those children is directly correlated to the conflict that happens between a husband and wife. That is how precisely our children react when we fight with our husbands or our wives. When we enter into a disagreement, it is something that causes their blood pressure to rise. It causes them to suffer. It places a great strain on them, psychological strain. So putting our marriage in jeopardy because of irrelevant desires and materialism is something that cuts at the very fabric and root of society which is the family structure. So if a person is putting themselves into debt and this psychological torture which is a type of prison and slavery this is definitely going to affect their marriage and practically we see it has a huge effect on the happiness of marriages and then it uh, precipitates into the happiness of children and so on and so forth. So helping those who are in debt is one of the uh, ways in which we are commanded to spend our wealth. And also in this is an implication that we must strive to avoid debt as much as possible. Our Khulafa have advised us on this as well. And especially when it is just for the sake of desire and materialism, it should be absolutely avoided. And they observe prayers and they pay zakat. This comes many times in the Holy Quran. And of course it has the meaning of specific with prayer and the giving of zakat which is financial sacrifice. But we can also remember whenever we read this in that in a broad sense, this is a summary of hukukullah and hukukul ibad. The observance of prayer is our foremost responsibility in 
our responsibilities to Allah Almighty. And then, وَآتَ zakat That is the, uh, p- the pillar of Islam that has to do with hukuku libad. It is a representation of all the aspects of our responsibilities to humankind. So, aqama salata wa'ata zakata summarizes those two responsibilities, a responsibility to Allah Almighty and to His creation. وَالْمُوفُونَ بِأَحْدِهِمْ ahadu, And they fulfill the covenant which they make once they have made it. وَالسَّابِرِينَ فِي الْبَأْسَاءِ وَالذَّرَّاءِ وَحِينَ الْبَأْسِ And they are patient in poverty and afflictions and steadfast in times of war. Now this patience, this sabr is something that is mentioned immediately after the responsibility of fulfilling covenants. And these are two things that are of course intrinsically related. Why wouldn't they be? The fulfilling of, an, of a covenant has everything to do with trials. Because the whole reason we make a covenant is because later on there, there is a need that a person feels to break that covenant. Our simply saying something should be enough for us to stick by it. But it is not enough when we just say that we are going to do something. Because when we face a difficulty afterwards, that is when people feel a need to change their minds. So the whole reason for there being covenants in the first place is because difficulties arise later on. That is the whole assumption in the word covenant in Ehd. If there was no difficulty which tested our resolve when we say that we're going to do something, then there would be no need for covenant at all. So when we make a covenant, we make a promise to someone, to the other party, that although I have said it, and by itself it should be enough that I have said that I will do something. But since there are difficulties that will come later on, so because of that I make a covenant that no matter what happens, I will stick to this promise and stick to this covenant no matter what happens. And this is my word that I affirm as an extra assurance on top of what I have already said. So any mention of covenant by itself carries an implied understanding of sabr, of steadfastness. A covenant without steadfastness is meaningless. It is completely nothing. It is, it is a baseless word that we say. So immediately after the mention of covenant that they fulfill the covenant that they have made comes the explicit mention after the implied mention that they are those who are as-sabirin. They are steadfast. And they are steadfastness in times of poverty and affliction and in times of war. Now in this regard, Hazrat Muslim one who explained that this steadfastness can have application in two aspects. One is with those who are believers or those who are friends and allies. And with those who are disbelievers or those who are enemies. Now, disbelievers is used in the Holy Quran many times in the context of war because the division was there because of religion. But that does, terminology does not mean it simply refers to a religious difference. It is, that's not the primary meaning. The primary meaning is one of enmity because the Holy Quran also speaks of being in a state of covenant and peace and cooperation and allied with disbelievers as well. So the Muslim one who explained that the sabr that we do in times of affliction and warfare, that when we get into a fight or a disagreement with a believer, then sabr is that we be ready to compromise. It takes great patience to bear someone else doing wrong to us when someone is fighting with us. And in that case, to create peace is the greatest sabr. It is something that is a source of great merit. As, as, as the couplet of Hazrat Masih says, that while being truthful, we should adopt the humility of a person who is lying, just for the sake of compromise and to create peace. But when it has to do with enemies, enemies who are seeking to do evil and to destroy Islam and to destroy people's human rights, then sabr means to not compromise at all. It means to stand our ground on the battlefield and to be able to lose every drop of blood in our body for the sake of that cause that we stand for. So these are the two opposite meanings of sabr. Sabr is steadfastness. In one context, it means that a person not show cowardice. 
That is a clear meaning of sabr that the Holy Quran has used many times. When a person is on the battlefield, it takes great steadfastness and resolve to hold their ground in the face of every type of fear and terror and every apprehension of loss that comes in that state of chaos in battlefield. That is true sabr. And that is a sabr of standing one's ground. But there is another sabr of being ready to leave their ground and compromise. When we are dealing with someone who is our brother, our family member, then to be able to bear the, the, the offense that our ego feels in that situation, that takes the highest level of patience and steadfastness for the sake of Allah Almighty. So sabr is something that is among the amali saliha. And amali saliha are actions that are done according to their time and place. It is not just have one universal definition. In one case, a type of sabr is an evil deed when a person stands their ground and is stubborn in a family dispute. On the other hand, to compromise on the battlefield is cowardice. So both of these things have to be taken into account. That those people who fulfill these conditions and act on all of these things show these characteristics. It is these who have proved truthful and it is these who are God-fearing. After describing all of these characteristics, then Allah Ta'ala says that only such people who have faith and then act on that faith and fulfill all these conditions are worthy of being said that Allah Zina Sadaku, that those who are who have proved truthful and those who are muttaqeen, who are worthy of being given this title in this context of muttaqi, of one who is God fearing and one who is righteous. So now, if there's any questions, uh, then we can address them. Right, if there's no questions, then we can end here and inshallah we will continue tomorrow. Allahumma salli ala Muhammadin wa ala Ali Muhammad wa barik wa salli minna ka hamidun majeed.